Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the series on poetry, people, and things. Um, I'm your host, Megan Wildhood, and I am here with uh, one of my press mates from Cornerstone Press, Jennifer DeBellis. I'm so excited to talk with her about her collection, her newest collection, New Wilderness. That's the um, poetry collection we will be focused on today. Um, Jennifer DeBellis, MFA, is author of New Wilderness, Cornerstone Press 2023, Warrior Sister, Cut Yourself Free from Your Assaults, Library Tales Publishing 2021, and Blood Sisters, Main Street Rag 2018. Her freelance career spans over two decades, allowing her to ghostwrite and edit literary and mass media content. She edits Pink Panther Magazine and directs A Rift Warrior Project and Detroit Writers Guild, 501c3. She's featured in Psychology Today and Seattle's My Independence Report, and her writing appears in AWP's Festival Writer, Palix, The Good Men Project, Medical Literary Messenger, Solstice, and other fine journals. A former Meadowbrook Writing Project Fellow, Jennifer facilitates summer workshops for Oakland University, as well as teaches writing and literature for Saginaw Valley State University. Find more at jenniferdebellis.com. I will be linking all of that, including the where you can get her uh, all of her books, including her newest one, New Wilderness, um, in the show notes below. Make sure you check that out. Um, you will definitely want to after we have this conversation um, about New Wilderness. Thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Megan. Great. I'm so glad you're here. I I am so excited to talk about this. This is a, a conversation I'd love to have about um, the, there's so much in New Wilderness. Um, it is the, as I was reading it, I felt what I thought the New Wilderness was shift so many times. And I loved that. I loved following what, when it appeared, the, the New Wilderness, both uh, the titular poem and then also as it popped up 
uh, throughout the collection. The one thing I I loved and was so curious about was the voice was so consistent throughout all of the poems. It was in the second person, which is very unusual um, and maybe not as much for poetry, but I think for an entire collection to be in second person, I thought that was incredible. And I have guesses for how or how and why, but I'd love for you to talk about um, that that style choice. Well, for, you know, when I read, wrote the first piece was the collection, you know, the, the title collection piece. And I wrote it in first person hmm. and I wrote it during, I teach in the summer at the Meadowbrook Writing Project and in this beautiful mansion. And I was sharing it with a bunch of high school girls. My, I had a group of serious writers, which is, you know, it's kind of unusual when you're in camp and they were all serious writers. And I felt so safe in that company and so i was developing prompts i had just come back from my daughter's radiation and chemo i had been living in virginia with her and i was ready to write and i had started you know taking notes and things because she said mom you've got to get my stories down but at mm -hmm. that time before i came back i was i had just signed my first book deal for blood sisters oh cool and I couldn't catch a break to really dive into the new collection. And it was like, that's okay, because every year my writing projects and my life starts in summer camp. That's when I start new projects and I just get a whole new vision and really tunnel focus on something. And so I was like, it's okay, it's waiting, it's waiting, it's waiting. So I wrote this piece <clears throat> inspired by uh, Bridget Bikin Kelly's song, ironically I was sharing this because it was a mature group of girls and I wanted to talk about how you could write about how difficult things happen to people who don't deserve it mm. and how do we navigate that how do we not censor that out of the human story and we were, had been working on that for two days and I said okay I had the perfect prompt I started writing the new wilderness poem and it was in first person I wasn't finished with it I started reading it and I was choked up I was like coming unglued as I was at this one particular part and I went through it because I said I think as in a company of writers young writers need to see you work through all of the struggles mm -hmm. of writing about difficult things so i said this is your opportunity to be a good witness to the whole process and i said to them when i was done i got through and i made sure i got through to where i was done i said i will come back tomorrow and this will be a different performance i promise you and i came back home and i wrote the rest of the piece in first person and i read it read it read it read it and i said no it's not right and i said all right i'm gonna do that thing where you take a step of psychic distance back but I can't take days because I promised my students I was coming back tomorrow with my A game. So I said, all right, let's take a quick psychic distance, which is, let me put it in second person. And as soon cool. as I put it in second person, I, I only had to read it like maybe five times before I stopped crying. And I was like, okay, there's something about this for me, the, the speaker here to tell her stories, that if I can take that psychic step back in all of the stories can i pull this collection off huh because i know and i have friends who are like second persons you know that's a death sentence don't right. write don't you know and i and i i love second person i have more published in award-winning fiction in second person point of view than any huh. other writing and huh. so i'm not gonna say oh i'm super good at it i love the challenge and I think I can do second person well, given the right circumstances and the right characters. And so I was like, I think I'm going to try this. 
and I'm just going to keep writing every piece in second person. And it, it gives you a different challenge. Yes. Because you don't want it to sound trite, right. forced. And there are times when you're like, oh, how can I speak about this in the second person, but not lose the speaker here? Right. Because there's a clear that clear sense of the speaker. You don't want to lose in this type of a collection the speaker. And so right. I I was constant constantly aware of that. And I just was like, you can do this. And there were a couple of pieces where I was like, it's not quite right. And I just, then I would just finish it and say, come back to it. You know, just mm -hmm. think about it, sit on it. And so that yeah. was how I started it, but I couldn't move away from it. Once I started, it was, it was like, this is the voice yes. that needs to happen. And as it started to develop, I could feel that universal yes. of being just a parent in like, it's hard to raise kids. I don't care what their nuances are. Right. They're, they're little monsters. <laughs> they have yes. all these personalities and <laughs> they can reach the top shelf and they, they can get in all kinds of trouble. I was like this, there's some universal here that I can also, you know, touch by just trying to explore what will this, this point of view do for me? Totally. I love that. I think too, uh, could, because I think this, the second person, when I was reading this collection, I felt that was absolutely right for this. And I'd wondered if there, there was, um, the, the goal was to have some distance because obviously this is, I mean, there are actually multiple difficulties, multiple tragedies in this, um, in this narrative. And so getting distance makes sense. And also it doesn't allow the reader to have distance. Yes. But the reader doesn't need distance because they haven't lived through it. So it's it's a wonderful way to switch the position of the speaker and the reader. Because I felt like totally I was in this. I didn't feel because one of the problems I think people have with second person is that you feel addressed by the writing rather than invited into it. And mm. um, which is why I uh I think there's there is that like oh second person as you mentioned they there's that's the first thing a lot of writing teachers say don't ever write in second person and uh obviously that's a rule that is broken all the time and this is um this is so so good it was not uh finger wagging it was not addressing the reader it was that you are the person experiencing this all all of this <laughs> all of what new wilderness is and um just just with the second person and how consistent it was it was thank you it was the same speaker for every poem um which is not that's not the case in my collection at all so this one felt very much and it felt like it felt like a story even as it wasn't totally linear um which is also i mean that's how trauma is it is not linear so <laughs> Um, the thing, and you mentioned the universal of parent of parenthood. One of the things that I, I noticed in this collection, um, is that there, there is a, an, there's a, obviously time goes only one direction for humans, but, or at least our perception of time only goes one direction for humans. However, I've noticed that's different with parents because as you captured in this collection, there is this, oh yeah, the daughter's getting older. Oh yeah. Oh. And then bam, this tragedy happens. But after that, when she, when the daughter's an adult, their childhood things come back in. And there yes. are poems where you're dropped right back into the childhood of the daughter after the this tragedy that happens um, 
when she's ostensibly an adult. So I wonder if that, because I don't, I don't have children, but that seems to be what I've noticed in my friends who do have children and my sister who also has a daughter that, that time stops being as linear for yes. in relation to your children. Is that kind of what you've yeah, it, it it stops. Yes, it does stop being linear. And then when you are, you know, there's another theme running through this collection, which is the loss of permanent and temporary short-term memory. Yes. And, and so as you're navigating this as a parent with your child mm-hmm. and your child is desperately grasping at that, it's like a phantom limb, which I mentioned that in the collection, but it really yes. is like this muscle memory where you're like, I, I, I think when I do this, this is supposed to move or I'm supposed to do something. And it's, it's so wild to watch your grown adult child go through that. And as you're going through that, because memory, memory is a bunch of pockets. (laughs) They're, they're literally pockets. And so, I mean, if you imagine you have a, a closet full of coats hanging up and you're like, I think I left you know, something, my favorite lipstick in the pocket of one of my coats and you just reach in and you're, you know, you're grabbing in the pockets and all of a sudden you're like, what's, you're pulling stuff out. What's this? What's that? And I felt like, you know, I'm just thinking of this right now. It felt like that as I'm writing one story, I would say, oh yeah, my daughter's really a character. She's always been a character. She's something else. I think I need to tell you about this for you to understand what I just told you. And as I started to move back and forth and kind of this, you know, what eventually becomes this triangulated path throughout the book, I was like, no, don't, don't make this linear. There are things that need to go back because they need to know that before they get here. But then there's things that they need to experience the way she's experiencing them and the way I'm experiencing them with her, which is like, where the heck did this just come from? Like, is that a real memory? What did, you know, did it? Did that happen that way? And so I was like, and that that really probably was one of the most difficult things about or, ordering the collection. Oh, sure. Yeah. Was figuring out, you know, because there is the temptation of putting everything, you know, trying to get things as linear as you can. Right. And then, you know, like when you're like, oh, they probably should know this. And then you go back and you revise a piece to be like, I need to give a little backstory here, a little flashback. But the fiction writer in me, because I write fiction also, uh-huh. I love stalling the forward motion and frustrating the reader because that creates really great tension. Not to like, you know, you're not pissing the reader off, but right. they were expecting this forward motion and they hit a brick wall and they're like, now what? And you're not just leaving them there because there's carnage at that brick wall where you just crashed. And you're like, okay, we have to deal with this. But they're like, but I want to know what was on the other side. What happens next? And you're like, you're like oh, no, that's I got to take, yeah. <laughs> take life. you back. And, and I thought the more I played with the fiction aspects of mm-hmm. how to frustrate tension that did become, I don't want to say easier, but it became a more fluid process. Yeah. Yeah. And it really captured the, um, the play. Well, I mean, memory is difficult for people who don't have memory loss anyway, because we are, even I've been like, I'm talking to my siblings. It's like, we all grew up in the same house. Uh, we all, I mean, I guess technically we had different parents because they were different ages, but we all talk about this one incident and, we know, we know that it's the same incident, but we remember very different things. And we're like, is that because we're different people? Is that because this time has passed? Is that because we actually were experiencing it differently? I think one of your poems, Static Chaos, talks about 
the the wreckage that um, the treatment of cancer makes of bodies and memories. Um, yeah. And I mean, we all we all know the the unfortunately we all know somebody who has has had cancer, um, and how going through that treatment uh, can affect the the physical body of that. Both of my, both of my parents have had cancer, um, and but we I was it was really highlighted in this collection to me the memory aspect of it where and this is this is brain cancer so this is not a universal cancer thing but i think it's a universal memory thing where you will remember this treatment very differently than your daughter um not just because you're the witness um not that you didn't also go through trauma but um i unfortunately also have a friend who's both children have had cancer as well but one of the things i loved about the so static chaos highlights just the wreckage that treatment is for sure. And it's interesting that we call it treatment and it's, it is sometimes the most destructive part yes. of cancer for sure. Um, and, but then overall, the whole collection has this air of fighting so hard to survive. You mentioned that, and there's several lines I picked out that hopefully we'll get to, um, and I want to know that though you, you were, uh, the speaker refers to, um, yourself as warrior mom. This daughter is the one that made me be warrior mom. And I want to know <laughs> why is it that we fight so hard to survive when there might be so little left after survival? And yeah, that was, uh, you know, when we started the process, you know, the no guarantee, the yeah. stage that she was at, the prognosis, the you might not live five years, which I can say she just passed five years since her surgery, right? And, you know, maybe you'll live 10 and all these other things. And yet, you know, we've got those people throwing, you know, the science that they have, but then also the doctors saying we don't have a lot of 21, 22 year olds. And they were studying the heck out of her and doing a lot of aggressive stuff to say, we want to rewrite this narrative. So her doctors, her cancer team was fabulous. Wow. And they, because she worked at the time at the University of Virginia Medical Center. She was okay. a student studying, but she had worked there almost five. She worked there like five or five and a half years. Yeah. Okay. And she had the best care. And so because she was young, but I also think also because she was one of theirs. Yeah. They were like, no, no, you get the family treatment. Yes. You, you, it's not just a family discount. You could just sit at the, at the chef's table. You get the family treatment. And mm -hmm. so they really came in and they were like, no, we really want to be thorough. We really want to be, we want to explore science. And her, her mm -hmm. neurosurgeon is the top third in the, I mean, in the um, world, this is the, he's the cell specialist. Wow. This is the, the, the brain surgeon's brain surgeon. If you could yeah. just this right. is where she is, right? So that was that was pretty fabulous also. But the idea that, um, I know I've strayed off the the, the question here. I'm trying oh, to reel right. myself We're, back. The poets here, yeah. <laughs> the, the idea, I'm trying to remember what was the one thread that you asked me that- uh, Why do um, we uh, fight so hard to survive? Oh, yeah. Might be so little so this, all right, so she's fighting super hard to do all this stuff. And I think- there was a point where some of that negative talk started to get into her thinking. And so right around that time where she's finishing up surgery, she gets the MRI, she's in remission, and that started to do some weird destructive stuff and started to make her think, maybe I will only live five years, maybe I will only live 10. Mm -hmm. And so she does, you know, she does the... Um, 
um, gets harvests her eggs. So she does, she does all that stuff. So she's like, in case I want to have kids, I don't want, you know, I don't want a yeah. chance having kids after radiation and chemo eggs. So she's like, right. She, she spoke and they were pretty, you know, good about telling her you should probably do this. And so she does all that stuff. And I think I want to have kids and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden it was like, I don't think I'm going to live. And I really want to go out with a bang. And so that started so the last part of the book is kind of that mindset yeah and and she kind of left me like like when she was younger and I was constantly fighting to keep her safe I mean she was a very there's a lot of stuff that I just didn't put in there because I didn't want it to be over the top I didn't want her to be like this you know like I didn't want to make her seem like a villain in her own yeah. story. But I was like, there are other struggles that she had as a kid that I was constantly the warrior mom, constantly fighting for her when she wasn't fighting for herself properly. I felt like I was there, you know, while she was going through it, you know, going through treatment, the same thing. But then here I find myself again, where we're supposed to be entering a new leg of the journey. Hmm. and a new wilderness right with like less jungle growth and more meadows of flowers and things where it's like okay and instead she's running me into some rainforest where I mean I don't want to be there and I have to decide which is interesting because and this probably happens to a lot of people when you're going through a challenge in life and you're really your character in specific important relationships is being challenged. Like how loyal will you remain in a relationship that you mm. committed to? Right. Yeah. Like as a parent, you're kind of committed. And I see a lot of families with a lot of distrust and, and, you know, disharmonious interactions and relationships. And I made a conscious decision to not have that with my girls. And that's been a conversation we've had since they could speak. And I was forced so many times to choose to be the warrior mom. You're not fighting for yourself. So now I need to put on my armor and I need to fight for you with you, you, you know, and, and, and sometimes she'd show up <laughs> and, yeah. and she'd be like, okay, okay. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to get serious about this. And then other times it would be, but a part of that is the mental illness and the roller coaster that goes through, you know, different manias, the highs and the lows and those things. But it's, uh, I found myself being that warrior parent during a time where a lot of uh, people who around me, who I knew were at odds with their kids or kids were at odds with their parents and they were yeah. completely writing people off. Like, I don't have time for this. You're out. Cancel, cancel, cancel. Like the cancel culture we live in. Yep. And I, you know, and it made me want to fight harder. It was a weird thing because I thought I am not like you. Yeah. And it, it just, it was something it made, it actually just incited me to such a place where I was like, I'm going to fight harder. I'm not giving up on my kid. Love it. Oh. You know, so that's that warrior, you know, that, yeah. that, that's the spirit. And I think you can probably see that through, through the work, but that's that spirit totally. where I was like stubborn love. I'm not giving up on you. <laughs> I loved it. There's a poem specifically called fighting for her. The one I just quoted, she's the one who forced you to be warrior mom. Um, and then also from that poem, uh, she tells you, she lives for you, does chemo and radiation for you says she stopped fighting to live for herself years ago. And I felt when I was reading this poem and 
in particular, but in the collection as a whole, there is that sort of defiant fighting that you just talked about that, oh, okay, well, I'm going to show up even more then. Okay, I'm going to fight even harder then. Okay, you don't want this? Like, challenge accepted. And <laughs> I wondered if I was reading that um, right, because I one of the benefits I have uh, that I think is, is a benefit is reading these collections before I get to know the personality of the author. And oh. your personality came through very strongly in the, you know, 30 minutes that we've gotten to speak to each other. Um, but I was like, there does seem to be this defiance. Like, yeah, I'm going to fight because you're not, or because this is so hard or because, yeah. I mean, I, I've noticed too, in this, this culture, the, the, the generation behind me. So Gen Z um, people in their late teens, early twenties now um, do seem to be cutting off their parents in mass for various reasons we can speculate, but um that's definitely very much broken my heart and I'm like yeah it's always it's always hard to be a parent from what I know um I don't have experience with that but that in particular has got to make this really really hard and when I learned that your the daughter is in that age range uh it was like there does seem to be something special about this relationship though because there's this push-pull throughout the collection um the kind of the I hate you don't leave me kind of thing yeah. <laughs> um but yes. but there's no like cancel culture going on that's not the the impetus behind the daughters get away from me type when she pushes because she not... knows she can't live without me yes <laughs> yes do you think that that's because of the the i mean we all want someone to fight for us the way that mamas fight for their kids the way that that I, you and this can... can fight for her yeah, so if I could go back to her childhood, yeah, and uh, you know she was, you know, since the hormones started, mm -hmm. like, and and I could tell there was always something. Like even if you go to the 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 piece where, um, oh, what's the one? Is it? Um, I can't even think the name of it now. I'm sorry. Where I take her to the mom and tot play group, yeah. and I'm like, mm -hmm. something's right. I got to get through to this kid. And even when she was little, like she's two years old at this point. She would knowingly sabotage things. And then I would say, what the hell's wrong with you? After, like, I would sometimes I'd be looking at her in the moment, like, you wanted this. You wanted to go out and get ice cream with kids, and now you're sabotaging it. And she would look at me and so helpless and say, I don't know. Like, I don't know what's wrong oh. with me. And, and so I kind of understood that was a part of whatever was broken inside of her from a very young age. And so I always had to. Yeah be that I always had to be aware of that and I think when you're raising a, a, a mentally ill child and at the time I had talked with her pediatrician we knew she was probably on the spectrum since we knew when she went, moved from four to five that it was very likely because she was always in the 95th percentile until she was four and then she stopped growing for like two years huh. and, but but she was like wicked smart and they're like and I just, I looked at her pediatrician one day and I said, don't use that language in front of my daughter. I said, is there something we can do to help her? And, mm -hmm. and she said, well, there's some, she talked about a couple of medications and I said, well, do the medications help the spectrum? And she said, no. And I said, so you want to medicate my developing child with things that won't help her there. And then you want to label her. So now kids are going to make fun of her because she's going to have to go to the special this. I said, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. Because if she's spectrum anyway. Right. Why? Yeah. And so I, but I knew. 
I knew, okay, I've got my homework cut out for me to figure out how do I help her. And so when I noticed that when she was younger, that whole self-sabotage thing, I was, so when she started to hate me in public all the time, like I was, it was, I was easy to be really angsty with everywhere we went and people would be like, man, you're so, her friends would say to her, she's horrible to you. I mean, you know, she, like she, yeah, they would say it to me and their parents. And I would just be like, I know, I know, I know. Right. We're going to get through this. I would always think we're going to get through this. And I would get home and I'd be like, you can't talk to me that way. Like you can't treat me that way. And I would try to have those conversations. She wouldn't, she would say, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I don't know why I get so like, do I talk to you that way? And it was just a really weird thing. And, and so I held out like pushing through that. Mm. that toughness I held out and it started to we started to develop a different relationship before the brain cancer and then the brain cancer happened and she regressed back into this worst version of herself and I was like dear god (laughs) I write the one thing I wanted the most and I said I'm not giving up on you and I'm not giving up on having that I believe we can have Mm. that and and it happened last spring so the last piece in the collection it was me going when she had four years to the anniversary of her brain surgery. She went into a manic episode and some things happened, which I talk about in that piece. Yeah. And it was that moment where I had been going and staying with her for long periods of time, but it was a moment where I could start to see that shift back into mm. like, okay, there's hope. There's, there's yeah. hope here. We can, we can have this. And sometimes she's still angsty with me, but we, we can, we can have this thing that I tried to cultivate and hold out for and not give up, but also, you know, um, to speak to something that is, is, uh, from the beginning of this conversation, the idea that when you have any type of a disability or disadvantage to have somebody advocate for you is so important. And I knew that that was an important role for me in her life way back when, and not to enable. So how do you find that balance where you're not enabling a monster but yeah. you're also advocating for somebody who clearly has something broken. And how do we, right? How do we navigate that world where we're not, I mean, cause a lot of people were like, just beat the crap out of her, you know, you'll, and I'm like, I don't know that trying to break her spirit or her will is she's not a wild horse. And even if you were to study wild horses yeah. and how you take them, you don't break their will. Right. You, you work around their spirit and you build a relationship. Exactly. And so I'm like, I'm really trying to build a relationship with my daughter who is a little difficult. And I don't think anything positive would come out of me using all of your strategies to just whip her into shape. So, yes, I love that. I love the, the, the sort of, how do we thread the needle between, yeah, we don't want to enable a monster. We don't want to aid in a bet. The, the dark tendencies, there's darkness comes that seems to have its fingers on all of these poems. There's this darkness as well as the hope. One of the things that I um, I picked up on, it's from a triangulated path. We talked about the triangulated path. It's not a linear path. Uh, there's a poem called triangulated path. And I wonder if I, I wrote this line down and it, it means something different to me now that I've um, heard you talk about what you're trying to cultivate and um, trying to keep the hope uh, of having this this relationship that we've talked about alive, even through regression or through trauma um, or through mental illness or through cancer. Um, And it says, you're right. I'm not your boss, but we're in a sisterhood now until death. Sisters here don't let their own rush to their demise. And I, (laughs) that 
struck me for so many reasons, um, including kind of what you were, what you just talked about. I wonder if that, if that's kind of the thing that you're now, you're now fighting for now that the daughter's an adult. Um, and I'm talking about, I say the daughter knowing she is a real person and also a character in this collection. Um, so, and then there's this, it speaks to how, I mean, it's hard enough for parents to revise the relationship between there is a power dynamic that, that has to be there until children are adults. And then it's hard enough to revise that role. And so now we're kind of almost equals a little, like, even with my right. parents, well, I'll always be your kid, but also I'm an adult and you have to let me make my own decisions. Even if you can see the total train wreck that's coming, um, <laughs> that's hard enough, but I wonder how do parents and adult children revise their relationships to to be equals, especially when adult children remain somewhat dependent and somewhat needy. And as you said, especially uh, the daughter knows that she can't live without you. Right. I think, you know, my some my other two daughters who are a couple years younger than her, they got to benefit a little bit more because as they started to get into those teenagers, especially my oldest daughter and their friends would come over. I coached a lot. I had a lot of, I ran a lot of programs in the community. And so mm-hmm. I, I was constantly coaching, not, not really the, the, the athleticism, but walking girls through trauma of growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of it was it, the stuff that the topics that I cover in my self-help book, some of it, it was just, you know, it's hard to be a teenager and to get along with, you know, your parents and parents who are st- split up and divorced yeah. and they hate each other. And they're trying to drag you into their, all this ridiculousness. If you're just trying to coexist, you're trying to figure out how to inhabit your body. That's completely talk about a runaway train. Your body's a runaway train and, and your emotions are running away with it. And I found myself constantly just trying to spend that quality time with them. And I very quickly became the person they told everything to. And, and Mm. I kept it. I did not go back to moms. There was only a couple times where I said I had to go back. Like there was one time where someone was taking a a 14 year old to have, you know, relations with another guy to get over the other guy. And I literally was like, okay, I love you and I love her and you're a single mom and I need to tell you this. And it ruined our relationship. But I was like, you know what? I care more about your daughter and she's 14 years old. And so there were times where I had to make that decision. Like I have information. Can I, can I go forward with this? But most of the time, 99.9% of the time, it was like, it stayed with me. And I always gave them good advice and that advice was always grounded in their own autonomy. What can you control? What can you impact? And wow. and so as I was doing that with them, my daughters are wit- witnessing this. They started to realize I could probably trust mom. She might get pissed at me. She might give me a piece of her mind. She might tell me what she wants me to do, or she might make it hard for me to access these things if I'm a minor. But she's going to give me sound advice. And whether I take it or not, it's here for me to draw on. And so I kind of started developing that kind of relationship with my kids. And I, and I used to get frustrated because I used to be in also, uh, um, I used to be involved in my church community when my kids were younger and I used to be in youth ministry and for young adults Mm. and for teenagers. And I kind of started learning a little bit about, um, there is a way to become the friend There's just different types of friendship, but there's a way to become your kid's friend. And that whole, you know, kids are supposed to be seen, not heard and all that crap. I grew up around that. Like I, 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I still have people who are my age, whose kids grow up with mine. They say that. And I'm just like, man, Ooh. that's. Ooh. Do you think if they're going to magically turn 20 years old and all of a sudden they're going to want a relationship with you? You're the last person they want a relationship with. You've totally invalidated their humanity their whole life. And, and so I'm a take note person. And so I took note of that and said, I don't want to be that. I don't want to cross lines. That's, that's not what I was trying to do. But I just became a safe haven for my daughters and their friends. They even came up with a phrase. They Their friends would text them and say, what would Jen do? And that became, hey, a, yes, right? They were like, what would Jen do? And that became a thing where they would text me and go, hey, so-and-so wants to know what Jen would do in this situation. Or they would all FaceTime me at a sleepover and they'd be like, can you talk? And and it was beautiful. And I love it. I would never trade that stuff for the world. And I mean, talk about being connected. Yes. To teenagers and young adults to have this privileged thing and, and to keep oh their secrets. Yeah. And to know that they're saying, if I ever, you know, like I, they're, like I said, I think I can count two times where I was like, I gotta, I gotta, yeah. I gotta break this. And, uh, and the one time I did it with the girl, like I talked to her and said, I'll go with you. Okay. Like, yeah. I'll be there with you. Cause I know this could turn ugly. And, um, you know, so I, I just, it, so, so moving forward to having those relationships with my daughters as adult, I think that transition was just a little like, like now, no, I'm not on the hook for it. Now you're on the hook for it. Yes. <laughs> Talk about how you can get yourself off the hook for it because you're not my liability, but right. I still don't want to see you, you know, fail or right. beyond fail. I don't want to see you be destroyed, you know, because yes. you, you learn from failure. That's not what I mean. I want them to sometimes fail at what they're trying to do. So they, if, but I don't want it to ruin them. And yeah. so that's that fine line too. You know, when yeah. you, when you quoting that line, I almost took that line out. I'm so glad that you said that because I really struggled with that. Not the line, the whole sentence, but yeah. it's like it split over like two or three lines. Yes. And I was like, okay, it sounds wonky, but I was like, this is how I said it. And I was like, everything in this sentence has to be here to contextualize so many other things. And so I'm like, it has to be here. And I, and I just read that the other night. And as I was reading it, I was self-conscious about it because I was like, this is the one line that's very much me yeah. talking to my daughter and saying, no, 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 man, we're like, we're friends for life. Like, and, and, you know, not just friends, like a sisterhood yeah. is a totally different kind of community. Talk about warriors. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a whole different kind of community. And I'm like, no, 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 we're in this now. So I can see the enemies coming over the horizon right now, you can't see them because you're refusing to turn back and look. Yeah. But I can see them. I can see you too. <laughs> and I can see they're getting closer. And and it was, it's like that kind of, you know, that, that sisterly bond, that, that love that you have, that is, I don't care if you get pissed at me. I mean, she even wrote me off. Like she wouldn't talk to me for a few months. And I was like, I don't care. And she dumped her kitten. She had this kitten that was like three and a half months old. She dumped him on me for those three months. And I was like, ha ha ha, she's not going to not talk to me because I have her cat. Goes <laughs> on you. <laughs> and I'm house training him. I'm like, yeah, that's what I needed to do right now. I needed to house break another animal. <laughs> and and I did. And, uh, you know, we got through that. But I, in the back of my head too, I'm like, I love it when you can position yourself in a place where you're like, oh, you have to come back to me. I have your cat. I have your little baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I am so glad you did not take that line out, um, the sisterhood line, because 
partly, I think that is something that we as women have, have really lost. Like we cannot really rely on um, women we don't know. We can't, some of us can't rely on our mothers. Some of us can't rely on our sisters. And so to have that word sisterhood, it's not friends. It's beyond that. It's the, yeah, I will, I will go to battle for you. I will go to battle with you. Um, and I'll even maybe have to look like I'm doing battle like with you against you in order to fight for you. I love that that is that. And that it feels like, it feels like what that line was, was a, uh, a calling up of the daughter. I'm inviting you into this. I see this in you. You know how you can kind of speak life into people, even if you don't necessarily see it in the moment, but yes. if you, people kind of, they live into the words that are spoken over them. And if there is this, if there's hope for sisterhood, it starts with the words. It starts with the declaration. We're in this now. And so there's this invitation to live in to that calling. I think that, that we just don't, I mean, where, where is that in our society really? And I think that having, I mean, there's so, there's so many things uh, there's, I'm, I'm going to uh, go to, there's this, the, the, the whole thing you just said about being um, in connection with teenagers, young women, um, young adults, as, as a, as an older, you know, as a person who's a mom who can seem, you know, uncool, or we don't want you in this space, or we don't want adults. We just want teenage. We just want our, ourselves. We, that's how teenagers are. And you were the person that they they went to. There's a a poem in this collection that I think kind of captures that. Um, it's a it called the Detroit Institute of Arts. It captures this. It also it captures the connection the the way that that you you're like yeah I will I will make a way to connect. Um, and it also captures this digital age phenomenon of texting each other while we're in the same room, and <laughs> I love that that showed up because. That is, that's so real. Um, they're in an art gallery, the mother and the daughters. So this is for the reader's benefit. They're in an art gallery. So there's reason enough to to be quiet, um, to not, for whatever reason, you don't talk to each other in an art gallery. I learned that the hard way once. Um, but but that's actually not the reason that the narrator of the poem gives to text. <laughs> it's that they're too mad to talk to each other. So I love this though. And it's like, I, the question I wrote down was, what is this magical power of texting that allows communication where verbal communication is inhibited? Because I text people I'm mad at and won't talk to either. <laughs> like, what is this? What is this? I love that. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because the funny thing is, too, so she's 26 now. And that yeah. happened when she was like 12 or 12 and a half. And so I was quite quite a while ago. I think I think we might have been texting on old technology like you know blackberries yeah. and yes. <laughs> yes. a verizon phone i don't even no, know if it's android or what an actual or... <laughs> <laughs> and so we were right so the texting was too also more like it took more work for us to text in this place <laughs> but and there weren't the emojis so all the emojis you can see through the the, right. the text are us making faces with symbols you know, the two, yes, the two yes, dash, yes. dashes and the underscore for the, you know, for the angry right. face. <laughs> yeah. all, but that was real. Like, that's all we had at our disposal and we, oh, we were God. using it. But I think I have thought about that a lot. Like, what is it? Because my two of my daughters in particular will do that. They prefer to text. And I, I have learned over the years both of them have actually asked me. So I'm kind of like, you know, I think all writers are, 
you know, we're constantly studying character qualities and people, what motivates and what did they do? And I think, okay, I can figure out why they did that. And so (laughs) to speak to that, I think it's, it's a more, and I, and I like it because it's a more reflective, if you allow it to be reflective, because you have a pause, you can be firing off the text, angry text, fast, 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 going back and forth. But there is a moment where you can go back and read, edit, backspace, I don't need to say that, revise, do all of those things that you could do to speak more informed, more reserved, more, let's just say intelligent, because an intelligent argument is something that you can pose while you work through your thinking and take take other things into consideration. And so they have both asked me in the past, two of my daughters, you know, hey, can I just send you this screenshot really quick? Or can I send you this text? Because I'm I'm in the heat of an argument with someone and I just want to make sure I'm... So that's part of the at what would Jen do thing. That's yeah. how some of this stuff started. Like, am I speaking my mind in a way that I, I'm speaking with conviction and not condemnation? Because wow. we know, right? Condemnation is like, yep. la, 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 la. I'm not listening yep. to you anymore. And so they started to recognize, I need my audience to still listen to me. And yeah. so I want them to receive what I'm saying, even if it makes them mad, because sometimes when people do speak to us with conviction, we're like, we don't want to hear that. Right. But right. If, if it's above the reproach of speaking with shame and guilt and all those other things, then then it's up to the person. Hey, I'm just stating something that's obvious to me or that I uh, perceive in my perspective. perspective. You can yeah. take how you want. And I'm not trying to insult you. And so th- that when I started to see that shape, it started to, cause I'm like, I don't want to text pages and pages and pages right. when we're arguing. I just want to talk because I don't need that to compose what I have to say. Right. You know, I have those, that muscle memory to be like, okay, you just said this. It's kind of like you, you yeah. become an improv, if you're a teacher, I learned this teaching. You have to become an improv artist because every lesson derails itself 10 times because the students don't come prepared or they're more interested in this thing or they're confused about that and so when you're having a conversation you can be like okay let me process that oh okay and then you can respond in real time with just maybe a second or two to really process that whereas some younger you know i want to say learners are still trying to learn how to how to articulate themselves in an in a collected in intellectual way without coming across as just ranting and people are shutting them off and the idea that I don't want you interrupting me I want to be able to say all this blah (laughs) and then you can say everything back to me and I'm already typing my response and and so it's but but that's you know that's an interesting thing also but I think that it could I mean, it can be a negative thing also. Like I said, it could be just the rapid fire where you're just firing back and forth and then you're saying things quicker than you can't take them back. Now they're in writing. You can't even say, oh, I didn't say that (laughs) because it's in writing. And so, or I didn't mean it that way or, oh my God, right now that I'm reading it, that's not at all what I meant to say, but it's out there already. And so that's, you know, that's a negative, but I think the positives are if, 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 you allow those things they can become yeah. that um it's like a, a moment of psychic distance where you're like okay yes. i need to pause here for a second and think about what i want to say back to you and it and it's not like so it, it takes away that real time which some people 
don't know. I mean, how many people do you know? I used to be that kid. You'd get home. People would be say like insensitive things to you or something super witty. And they would try to insult you. And you'd be like, I, I can't think of anything really. Uh, yes. uh, uh, uh. And then you get, you get in the car, you're walking out through, oh, I should have said this. Yes. But, yes. Right. So that's a, that, that is definitely a, most people have to develop the ability to synthesize in real time and to respond immediately after that's a yeah. thinking skill. It's a muscle. And so most texting generations are of an age where they're still learning how to synthesize mm -hmm. and respond in real time. And so that texting oh. actually gives them that pause Yeah. to like, okay, let me see how, and then they can reread it. Did I say it right? You know, forget about the typos. They don't even care about that stuff. They're like, whatever, <laughs> you know, she knows what I meant. Right. But yeah. they care about what they're saying, not if it's grammatically sound, but that they, yeah. they got to say it in a way that they want to come across that way. And so I think it's a good thing. Yeah. You know. All of those things I, I hadn't thought about. And uh, I mean, obviously there's the double-edged sword. There are people who will say things to strangers on the internet that they wouldn't say to someone's face, um, yes. which is obviously terrible. But there are there are a lot more benefits to texting than than I had, had originally thought about. And um, and this because in the poem and I'm reading it, it's like, okay, the people who are texting are mad at each other, and yet they are still having a relationship and they're working it out, and it doesn't have to ruin the day. Like they're still enjoying the art, they're still in relationship, and it's like. Yeah, I this is yeah, I'm gonna flag this. This is a good this is a good lesson. Um you used some some interesting words just then conviction and condemnation. Mm -hmm. And those are words I learned uh I learned in the church. And yes. I'm and you mentioned youth ministry and um spirituality, prayer, God, all of these waft through this collection in ways that I found really delightful. It was like, so I was startled by recognition. Um, and I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to um, spirituality. I don't know if you'd call it religion, God, kind of that, yeah. how, how that plays out for you. Yeah. So, and it's been hard. Yeah. You know, when I first came back to school, I was, I was still a, a, a high up leader at my church doing all different kinds of stuff. Mm. And, and I knew I am a spiritual person. So I knew God had a call on me. He wanted me to go. He wanted me to get out of that church. He wanted me to go and do other things and going back to college and getting my degree at first, you know, I was like, my husband's not going to go for this. I'm going to go to become a writer, <laughs> but I was already doing so many things that it made sense to not go back to what I was doing. But in coming back to college, I met more people who were just really angry and hurt by the church. And so they were very like, don't yeah. talk about it. And then people who were just completely insensitive to not every faith, but just Christianity. And so <laughs> I, I had to navigate that world very quickly, but I'm like, I'm not going to become a different person. So I found myself having to learn as I navigated those first few years back in college, how do I navigate not self-censoring myself until I'm invisible. Yeah. But also, you know, doing this thing. And at the same time, we were going through a couple of things where I was experiencing some abuse from the church. And I started to have to, you know, I questioned some things about you talk about religion. I questioned some things and I said, all right, I really got to focus in on I know God's real. I know my faith is real. I live a supernatural life every day is like, I mean, God shows himself to me. So that's not a, a question. I could argue like, we're not going to argue about it. Like I, I see it in the little, I see it in the big. 
And um, I wish more people did because it's pretty yes. damn cool. Yes. And so I'm like, you know, and while I'm going through all this too, and all my kids' friends are, you know, they're all coming from families too. Some of them, you know, very, very religious and condemning and things like that. And I just had to really focus on that, that, you know, the difference between relationship with your creator. So I was like, okay, I don't have to be in a church. I don't have to, my husband had gone through his own mania and everyone from our church community that we had these like small groups and those groups were fabulous. They were a lifeline for a really long time. They all just abandoned me. And I was like, Ugh going through this by myself. I'm back in school full-time. My kids are still small <sighs> and now I have like no support and my husband's coming unglued and I'm trying to keep like, everything glued together. And I'm like, that's okay. That's all right. I'm just going to buckle down. I'm going to work harder. And I just drove into different aspects of my home life and my work life. And I was like, we'll, we'll be fine. Right. Like I don't need all of you people. I would like, all of you yeah. people. but I was like, I, I got this and it kind of drove me to rely on my faith a little bit more and that private relationship that we have in our faith. Yeah. And so in that private relationship, it forced me to go internal and to really kind of reconcile some of the things that I couldn't be open about. Mm. And so I started exploring, even in my writing, you know, the absence of speaking about faith and the absence of, mm. you know, having religion and God and all that. And my writing kind of suffered. And I just kept trying to push through it. And because I'm, again, I'm writing about, you know, I was a fiction writer who was just starting to get into poetry. Mm. And so it's ironic to me that when we talk about faith, that God has decided I'm going to have my first book is my coming of age stories. I'm like, who the heck wants to read my coming of age stories? But apparently people love the book. <laughs> and so, but that book sparked my second book, which is self-help for anybody trying to overcome um, physical violence, uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. And wow. uh, so I'm like, okay, this, I can see the total logic here for why these things are happening, but I have fiction that I think my fiction's better than my poetry. And I'm like working on now this, the new wilderness. And then that gets picked up. And I'm like, this is so weird to me that all the things about my life are the things that are getting published. Yes. And I don't want to say, like, I don't want to sound so like a freak and say, oh, it's all, it's just God's design because we have to recognize that there are readers. Yeah. There are publishers yep. who recognize there are readers. Yes. And these people are picking these books. So there's a larger universal thing here. And I think a hunger for people to be vulnerable enough to be transparent, even enough. Like I don't like I don't go a ton into my faith because I'm like, I don't want that to be what the book's about either. Because right. right. I want any person to be able to read it. And even if they're angry at the church or they don't believe at all, and there's no like I don't want. Right. It's not a salvation call. It's not a like yeah. if you don't have faith, you right. You what, what yeah. are you? I, I so to find that balance also. But um, it, once I started every single collection that I have published, I mean, every single book I published, once I started to make my faith visible in the writing, it was so much better. And I'm not just saying that as the author of the work, I'm saying it from yeah. the feedback I get from readers. Yeah. They're like, that's the part. And I'm literally yeah. like, I almost didn't put that in because I didn't want to scare off, you yeah. know, like I wanted it to be like for everybody. And I yeah. know you can't write for everybody and that's, but I right. wanted it to right. be like, not a turn off, 
to some of the readers who I know would be really enamored with the other things in the books. And Absolutely. yeah, so yeah, so that that is a that's a struggle. But I think for me, it's like, it's a huge part of me. Yeah. And people who know me and know how why I operate the way I operate are like, they those things don't stand out to them obviously because they're around me and they know like okay like she has like the like the the triangulated path piece yeah which was one of the last pieces that I wrote in there okay um, yeah. I I was like I I mean that was a pretty crazy experience and like I got to write about these red-tailed hawks and my kids make fun of me about them they're always like a mom and her big birds <laughs> but I'm like seriously like this is a thing and and so I was like I have to write about it and then when I wrote that piece there were a couple other pieces in the collection that I went back and said I need to be more transparent here mm -hmm. and so I brought some of that into like two other pieces where I was like okay I need to just be a little transparent so that the subtle references are like I'm still in character because you know you're a persona yes, of, yes. You're, I'm like I'm still in the character that is supposed to be really close to Jennifer Yes. I related, to, I relate both to the struggle of how do you include something that's such a huge part of you, namely your faith, as a writer without scaring people away, without turning them off, without giving the message that, oh, this is only intelligible to people who study scripture eight hours a day or whatever. Right. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, New Wilderness, it strikes that balance so well because um, I, I'm i a believer now. Uh, and so I picked up on those those threads it's like oh I recognize this language but I was not a believer um until I was an adult and so I remember not having faith and I think those things either I wouldn't have registered them or I yeah. would have been like oh okay spirituality is a thing that's different for everybody so whatever or God means whatever we want it to mean and I so I think that's and it's just it is a it's an ongoing struggle though I think because there are um, because things are so fraught about religion and especially Christianity. Um, yes. But also, how do we not self-censor something that is a central part of who we are? And I think that's, I, I think this was such a, such a good balance in this collection. Um, Thank you. Yes, I loved it. The final, uh, well, I have two, two final questions. And then uh, I'd love for you to read a poem for us. The one thing you said in, um, talking about uh, writing and how do we find the balance and um, where's my faith and spirituality is uh, this, you actually address this in the collection, which I thought was awesome as a, as a writer myself. Um, it's called, uh, the poem is called face it. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you write like the other insights that plague you, you've turned this idea into a book, not yet written for the world outside your mind. What is the he what is so healing about the writing process? Because that seems to be also kind of universal among writers. I mean, yeah. And that's, that's something I, I kind of discovered, you know, kind of bringing everything full circle too about the memory thing and the pockets yeah. and the, you know, you find something in a pocket where you're like, oh, I wondered where that went. And, you know, that's, it's, yeah. you know, memory is, is, a, is this beautiful thing. I have a fabulous memory. My husband always says, Hmm. your memory is blows me away you remember details and and I'm like okay hmm. whatever but the the idea of um I I thoroughly believe so I talk about this in my, my second book I have eight stages of grief that I believe you know people who've experienced physical trauma work through and one of the strategies for healing is making peace with things 
And as you do that, you redevelop your self-worth and your confidence just grows and grows exponentially. And that's a really big principle for me in self-healing. And I learned that a long time, you know, just even just journaling Mm -hmm. can be, it's beyond cathartic because a topic I'm working on a keynote speech right now too, is this idea, which is the, the part of the title of my book is cutting yourself free from carrying around this heavy baggage of trauma and it's heavy and it weights us down and it's sick, right? It makes us sick. It's, it's full of sickness and, um, there's nothing good about it, Yeah, you know, and, and really, but, but women in particular come from decades of, you know, you've got to, you know, put your big girl panties on and suck it up. And aren't you over that yet? And we've solved that already. And all these things is like, Whoa, I just, right. And, and so we've, we've kind of, we've stigmatized grief, which is a real thing that we have to, we have to process it. And there are different ways and different stages of it that plague us. And we have to do it. You have to do it. If you don't, you keep burying it and you keep and it compounds. And eventually that's why people have mental breakdowns and, and have like, they just can't cope is because it's, it's, it all comes undone. And it's like, well, I know I can't put this all back in. It won't fit now. And so, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a real thing. And so for me, writing does all those things. But when I started to learn about the power and i didn't live on this quote i just read this quote the other day where emily dickinson says um write your slant poets she goes i love the poetry that right is written slant and i thought that's that comes back to the persona but also it comes back to being authentic and true like don't spin it into something that it isn't Mm -hmm. and so i was like okay i'm writing writing so important it's cathartic it's it's a release but it can also be a way to do two things really effectively mm-hmm. it's a way to take back your power mm-hmm. and it's a way to give voice to something that you know is universal it and that that is like when you know that you can give voice to something that's universal, you then take away, I don't care if you're a faith person or not, if you can, everybody can agree, there is a temptation to isolate when you are struggling through something Mm -hmm. or something has happened to you, whether it's shameful or not. There is this, no one can relate to me. No one will understand. No one can help me. Whatever the reasons Mm -hmm. for being alone and isolating, not because you want to be alone, that's a good thing, but the alone when you're like, ah, no one can reach me or relate to me. Writing gives you, like, I know poets do it. And when I recognized that, those those key things working together, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write about my own stuff. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, I love to write about other, I like fictional stuff. I love to give voice to all kinds of things. But I'm like, I'm going to write about my own stuff because yes. I am going to be powerful. Yes. So. I love it. I'm going to be powerful. I love that. I, um. As I said before the recording, I had 24 questions um, and got through five, got through that five <laughs> which sounds about right. Um, <laughs> as writers, we believe we have things to say that other people need to hear. Um, I uh, so, of course, I can talk to you all day, but I want to make sure we have time for you to read a poem. And so but my final question before we do that is, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? Hmm. No, not really. I, I really enjoyed the, 
I, I enjoyed the questions. I love when we can have conversations that I've never had before. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like to do that when I, when I interview people, I like to, you know, you have to stalk them and say, what can I figure out? What is somebody already <laughs> talking about? So you can ask questions that build on the conversation. You yes. don't want to be like completely like, oh, I know you've never thought about this, but bam. <laughs> and then right. they're like, uh, right. uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. Right. But I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You touched on so many things. I mean, we jokingly say five questions, but really you asked a lot of um, specific, insightful things that were beyond just the collection. And mm -hmm. I really enjoyed being able to talk to you and hopefully to the to the listeners who hear this yes. about things that are universal, which is so important to me to be able to open up ways for us to talk about things that are universal, that we can connect to regardless of our, you know, connection. You don't have to be a parent to understand or appreciate this collection. You just have to be, you know, we're, we're all kids. Yeah. And we, we all had parents. Exactly. So we point. all know what that is. Yeah. yeah what what those struggles can be and we you know it I, I feel like like this was a great a great breadth of of conversation that we got to have so I really appreciate everywhere you dared to take us yes thank you and everywhere that you dared to take us and dare to take readers in new wilderness uh you do you don't have to be a parent to love this collection I have read it twice I'm not a parent and um I, but I, I have parents and uh, we, you at one point were a child. If you um, have made it this far and you had parents or caregivers, um, you probably know somebody who had cancer or some other very serious illness. Um, you probably know somebody who has experienced a mental illness at this point as well. And I think the last three years would all qualify us to say we've experienced some sort of trauma. This is, <laughs> um, in my opinion, collective trauma has happened. Um, so there are so many threads uh, even the isolation, um, there's a, there's the isolation period comes up a number of times in this uh, yes. as well. And that was a question we didn't get to, but um, I think that th there's a specific thing that refers to in cancer treatment, but there's also a more universal thing that that uh, refers to not just about the pandemic, but kind of in general in life. Um, so if you have ever experienced isolation or loneliness, you can recognize yourself in these poems also. And speaking of recognizing yourself, I would love for you to end with reading the poem called Give It More. Okay. All right. So this one's toward the end of the collection. Give it more. Beyond briefing you on her advanced directive and the craniotomy, radiation, and chemo risks, no one tells you what parts of your daughter will be forever lost. They don't tell you her compassion will be the first casualty her best quality, her patients cauterized with the tumor tissues they send for biopsy, her creativity likely knit into the tumor itself. You live in her six by eight storage room for eight weeks because you can't rely on her roommates to manage her post-op routines and treatment cycles. Four states from home, you wonder how much smaller you can grow how many more ways you can divide yourself to meet all three daughters and your husband's needs. Almost three decades ago, your husband survived his own brain trauma, lived but lost his logic and bits of English, his second language. 
now quicker to anger and slower to forgive. He's often a full-time job when his mania is tripped or untreated. Like with your daughter, they told you he'd heal with time. Just give it more time. But you know time alone won't heal a broken brain, won't mend fractured lives, which dared to build their dreams on foundations in landscapes with numerous faults. Oh, wow. Third time that I've <laughs> gone, I've experienced that poem and it uh, something different really hits every time. Something different hits every time, which is how I will summarize this collection. <laughs> Not that you really can summarize a poetry collection. Um, if you could, you'd write a summary. But <laughs> this collection, I will commend to all listeners as well as all of the other links to Jennifer's work that I'm going to link in the show notes. Um, for now, I will say thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer. This was a wonderful conversation and I am hoping to have occasion to do it again. I hope so too, Megan. We'll come up with some other things to talk about. I love we'll it. We'll just have to write another book. I, I am. I am writing yes. another book. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, keep me updated. I'm so happy that we're pressmates. That's how we got connected. Yes. Um, yes. So yes, again, find all the links for New Wilderness as well as other uh, her other works in the show notes below and tune in next time for our next conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.